and welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Today, I'm going to tell you about the case of Brooke Wilberger. Brooke Wilberger was born on February 20th, 1985 in Fresno, California to parents Greg and Cammie Wilberger. She was one of six children and had three sisters and two brothers. She grew up in Veneta, Oregon, about a 45 minute drive from the town of Corvallis where Oregon State University is located. Go Beavs. She was athletic, an honor student, and a devout Mormon. At the time of her abduction, Brooke was just 19 years old and had just finished her freshman year at Brigham Young University. She returned home to Oregon to spend the summer. On May 24, 2004, at around 8.30 a.m., a green Dodge Caravan was seen driving around the Oregon State campus. The van pulled up next to Randy Honrad, and the driver asked Randy for directions to a fraternity house. The driver then got out of the van, opened the side door, and tried to get Randy to come closer to him, but she quickly walked away due to her uneasy feelings about the interaction. Uh, same girl. A short while later, the same green caravan stopped on Western Avenue and asked a woman named Crystal Thornton for directions to the campus athletic department building. An assistant athletic director was walking to his car and saw this interaction. He quickly got into his own car and blocked the driver of the van from further engaging with Crystal. The driver of the van eventually left and drove to the Oak Park Apartments. At around 10 a.m. on the 24th, Brooke Wilberger was outside working at the Oak Park Apartments. Her sister Stephanie was the manager of the apartment complex, and Brooke was helping her by cleaning lampposts. The Green Dodge Caravan arrived at the Oak Park Apartments and abducted Brooke at knife point, leaving her flip-flops, one of which had a broken strap, behind. The van quickly sped off. Later on that morning, Brooke's brother-in-law went to let her know that lunch was ready, but when he went out to the parking lot, he saw no sign of Brooke. The cleaning supplies were still sitting by the lampposts, and he noticed her broken flip-flops on the ground. He immediately became concerned when he found Brooke's purse, wallet, and phone inside the apartment, and he saw that her car was still in the parking lot. A missing persons report was quickly filed. An exhaustive 11-day search was conducted. Over 4,000 acres of woods in the Corvallis area were searched. The investigation was led by the local Corvallis Police Department. An additional 216 law enforcement personnel, including the FBI and the DA's office, worked on the case. With no sign of Brooke and minimal evidence to go on, the search was called off on June 5, 2004. Sex offenders living in the area at the time were interviewed, but police were no closer to learning what happened to Brooke. She had a boyfriend named Justin, but he was quickly ruled out as a person of interest because he was on a Mormon mission trip over 4,000 miles away when she was abducted. Police also looked at a man named Sungku Kim. He had been arrested for stealing women's underwear. He received an 11-year sentence for theft and burglary, but was eventually ruled out as a suspect in Brooke's case. Unfortunately, without any leads, 
Brooke's case would go cold. Then, six months after Brooke was abducted, over 1,500 miles away in the city of Albuquerque, New Mexico, Natalie Kirov was grabbed from behind and forced into a red Honda. She was held at knife point and sexually assaulted. She managed to escape when her assailant left her alone in the Honda while he went to buy drugs. Natalie went to the police and she was able to provide enough information for the police to arrest a man named Joel Patrick Courtney. So who is Joel Patrick Courtney? Joel grew up in the Portland, Oregon area. He started using drugs at the age of 11, and by the age of 15, he had already been sent to a juvenile detention center. At age 19, he was charged and convicted of first-degree sex abuse and first-degree attempted rape after he groped a female friend who gave him a ride home. Just so you know, that's not the way to thank somebody for giving you a ride home. Anyway, Joel eventually married a woman named Rosie, and they had three kids. The family moved around a bit, but they lived in both New Mexico and Oregon around 2004. In June of that year, Courtney's wife left Oregon and she returned to New Mexico. Two weeks later, Joel Courtney was arrested for domestic disturbance after he showed up at Rosie's house in New Mexico. As I mentioned, the family had moved around a lot in 2004, but in May of that year, Joel was living in Oregon, and he had been hired by a janitorial company called Creative Building Maintenance, which operated in the Corvallis area. When he was hired, he was provided with a green company van, just like the one spotted in the area where Brooke was last seen. Joel became a person of interest in Brooke's case after police noticed similarities between her case and Natalie Kirov's. Police were able to locate the van, and they sent it to the FBI for analysis. Both Joel and Brooke's DNA, as well as Brooke's hair, were found in the van. At the same time all of this evidence was being collected, Joel pled guilty to the sexual assault and kidnapping of Natalie, and he was sentenced to 18 years in a New Mexico prison. In August 2005, an Oregon arrest warrant was issued for Joel Courtney. He was charged with 14 counts of aggravated murder, two counts of kidnapping, and one count each of rape, sodomy, and sexual abuse related to Brooke's abduction and murder. He was extradited from New Mexico to Oregon in April 2008 to face those charges. Prosecutors in Oregon reached a plea deal with Joel Courtney on September 18, 2009. He told investigators that he had abducted Brooke at knife point, bound her with duct tape in his van, and drove her into the woods. He later raped her and claimed that he bludgeoned her to death after she became upset that she was being raped. He dumped her body under a log and he covered her with wood, ferns, and moss. Joel drew a map of where police could find Brooke's body off of Highway 20 in the town of Blodgett. He only did so to avoid the death penalty. As part of his plea deal, Joel also requested to serve his time in New Mexico. On September 21st, 2009, Joel Courtney was formally sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for the murder of Brooke Wilberger. Joel Courtney is currently serving his life sentences at the Central New Mexico Correctional Facility in Los Lunas. Brooke's parents filed a lawsuit against Creative Building Maintenance for the negligent hiring and supervision of Courtney. At the time of Brooke's abduction and murder, Joel Courtney was a registered sex offender. In their lawsuit, her parents alleged that Creative Building Maintenance didn't obtain a pre-hire criminal history check for Joel Courtney. 
CBM stated that Joel Courtney was terminated from their company prior to May 24th when Brooke went missing. The company was unsuccessful in attempting to retrieve their van from Courtney after he was terminated. The judge ruled that it wasn't reasonably foreseeable that Brooke would suffer harm at the hands of Courtney, and CBM's hiring and supervision of Courtney didn't unreasonably create the risk of harm. One of the most frustrating things about this case is that Brooke's murder and Natalie's assault could have been prevented. Joel Courtney was a registered sex offender, and he should have been monitored. Police should have been called when he was driving around the OSU campus looking for women to abduct. Why didn't the athletic director immediately call police and report Courtney? Did the women not report the suspicious activity? It also makes me really sad when killers like Joel Courtney use the location of a murder victim's body as a bargaining tool. Families deserve to know where their loved ones are, and you shouldn't be allowed to reduce your sentence for providing information that any other humane person would provide. The last point I want to discuss is the Wilbergers family lawsuit against creative building maintenance. As a lawyer, I get why we allow liability for some parties and not others, but here, I find it almost laughable that the company argued they weren't negligent because Courtney had been terminated prior to Brooke's abduction and murder. That seems somewhat irrelevant to me because they initially hired Joel Courtney without conducting a background check. This basic employment screening likely would have turned up that Courtney was a sex offender and it's possible that he wouldn't have been hired. But instead, a background check wasn't done and Courtney was given a company vehicle with which he was able to drive around looking for the perfect opportunity to prey on an unsuspecting woman. To me, this at least hints at negligent hiring, and I respectfully disagree with the judge's decision. If you want to learn more information about Brooke's case, you can check out our website, truecrimecatlawyer.com, where you can find the sources for this episode. And as always, I would love to hear your thoughts, so please head over to our social media post for this episode or send an email to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. The next case I'm going to discuss is the murder of Elise Poller. Elise was born on April 24th, 1980 to parents David and Lizanne Poller. Elise was the oldest of four children and she had two sisters and one brother. David Pollard was a contractor, and his wife, Lizanne, was a part-time tennis instructor. The family lived in Arroyo Grande, California. Elise was active in her church, but she did have some drug issues when she entered her teen years. She attended Arroyo Grande High School, which is where she met Royce Casey, Jacob DeLashmet, and Joseph Fiorella. On the night of July 22, 1995, Elise was watching Paint Your Wagon, a Western musical, with her family. She received a phone call from Joseph Fiorella inviting her to come smoke pot with him. 
Elise hung up the phone, told her parents she was tired, and went to bed around 9.15. Elise later snuck out to meet Joseph, Royce, and Jacob at Napoma Mesa, a wooded grove near her house. Once they were in a remote spot of the grove, Jacob walked up behind Elise and strangled her with a belt, pulling it tight against her neck. Royce then held Elise down while Joseph started stabbing her in the neck with a six-inch hunting knife. Jacob and Royce each took turns stabbing Elise in the neck and back a total of 12 times. Royce stomped Elise on the back of her neck, and then the teens dragged her to the middle of the grove where she bled out slowly from her stab wounds. They removed her pants, but there are conflicting reports as to whether the teens raped Elise after she was dead. Elise's parents reported her as a missing person early on, but the San Luis Obispo police refused to believe that Elise was the victim of foul play, and they told her parents that she was a runaway. Eight months later, in March 1996, Royce Casey confessed to the murder, first to his priest and then to police. Shortly after Royce came forward, so did Jacob and Joseph. In their interviews with investigators, the teens said they had formed a band named Hatred and had come up with a plan to, quote, murder a virgin and consecrate their belief in Satan, end quote. Also, this would somehow help them play the guitar better. Seriously, this is so bizarre and ridiculous. Thoughts like this are exactly why kids should stay in school. The teens planned the murder for at least a month prior to the event while they were listening to the death metal band Slayer. They told investigators that they chose Elise because of her blonde hair and her blue eyes. The teens also told investigators where they could find Elise's body just one mile from her home. Elisa's body was too decomposed to conduct rape testing. The identification of her body was confirmed through dental records and a red plastic bracelet made of hearts found on her wrist. Jacob later told the Washington Post that Elise was murdered because Joseph was obsessed with her and obsessed with killing her. Prior to Elisa's murder, Royce, Jacob, and Joseph were described as problem kids and social outcasts. They were into drugs, including marijuana, meth, and LSD. Casey had been expelled from Arroyo Grande High School, and he was actually attending an alternative school. Joseph was being homeschooled due to his issues at Arroyo Grande, and Jacob was expelled for drug possession and swearing at a teacher. Joseph, Jacob, and Royce were arrested on March 14, 1996. Prosecutors sought to try the teens as adults. At the time of Elise's murder, Royce was 16 and Joseph and Jacob were 15. Joseph was charged with first-degree murder, while Royce and Jacob were charged with first-degree murder with the special circumstances of torture and rape. The three eventually pled no contest to the charges and were sentenced to 26 years to life. Royce was denied parole at his first hearing in July 2016, and he will go before the parole board again in 2021. Joseph was up for parole in June 2020, but I couldn't find any information on whether that parole had been granted or not, likely because of everything that's going on with the coronavirus. And similarly, parole information for Jacob was not available. 
Elisa's parents filed a lawsuit against Slayer and Columbia Records in 1996. The lawsuit was actually delayed until after the resolution of the criminal case against the three teens. In 2001, the judge ruled that while Slayer's lyrics might have been offensive, their lyrics didn't incite the teens to murder Elise. The judge held that the lyrics were protected by the First Amendment. Following this lawsuit, Elise's parents went on to start a nonprofit organization to help families locate their missing children. They channeled their grief into something positive. If you would like to learn more information about Elise's case, you can check out our website, truecrimecatlawyer.com, where you will find our sources for this episode. I'd also like to hear your thoughts on this case. Do you think the media, video games, music, etc. can influence a person to kill? Do you think the teens who murdered Elise should be paroled? Let me know your thoughts on the social media posts for this episode, or you can send an email to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.